The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Um, today's scripture is from John uh, chapter 10, verses 11 through 16. And you can read it however you read it, or you could follow along on the screen behind me, or um, in the Bibles under your chairs. It's on page 896. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. This has been the reading of God's word. You can sit down. Good morning. morning. We've uh, started a new thing that if you get your baby dedicated, you get to preach. So you guys should line up for that. Um. I don't know if it's a family thing or if it's just a me thing, but I love Tom Cruise. And in fact, this is no joke. My younger brother's name is taken from a character in a Tom Cruise movie, Days of Thunder. It's Cole Trickle. He was the driver. My little brother's name's Cole. So I don't know if I get it naturally or if I'm just partial. And I do love movies in general. And when I think about sequels they're usually pretty lousy, aren't they? The first one's almost always the best. But there's a couple of sets of movies that I can watch no matter how ridiculous I get. And Mission Impossible is one of them. I think the last one I went to, the most recent one that came out, Tom Cruise is hanging out the side of an airplane, like totally unrealistic. But I love it. And, you know, if you know the storyline, and I even had growing up uh, on the Nintendo 64, the Mission Impossible video games, I mean, I'm like all in. I love it. And if you know anything about the storyline, Ethan Hunt, which is uh, Tom Cruise, works for MI6, this uh, private sort of CIA-like organization, and he... uh, he gets sort of asked at random points throughout all six or seven of the movies, you know, this little voice comes over, whether it be like a computer or a, uh, uh, a phone or in some very obscure place, it says, you know, Ethan, and it gives them sort of a, a mission and says, this is your mission, should you choose to accept it, right? And then this, this will self-destruct in 10 seconds. And that's sort of like the, the tagline for all of Ethan's activities, And what's interesting about uh, the Mission Impossible movies is every single time Tom Cruise saves the world. I mean, the world is saved like six or seven times in the last 15 years, all by Tom Cruise. And in the movie, if Tom Cruise doesn't accept a mission, the mission fails, right? And the Christian mission is basically the exact opposite of that. In fact, The Christian mission is not dependent on us at all, meaning its success is not relative to whether we participate in it or not. 
Because God, in his mission, has succeeded, is succeeding, and will succeed. But what we get to do is join in on that. And so if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that our typical uh, Sunday morning is us working consecutively through a book of the Bible. And so we just finished several months in 1 Peter last week, and we're going to take a pause. And what we're pausing on is this idea of mission. Uh, Becca and I, uh, actually in November, it will be seven years since we uh, left our previous church and came to help start Doxa. And this was before there was ever even a first church service. And one of the most important conversations we had was, what was the church going to be built on? This church. And the, the, the pillars, sort of the four pillars, are Jesus, worship, community, and mission. And maybe let me talk to sort of the members for a second, those of you that have been here. Um, we have had sort of some inner turmoil and some repentance take place over the last month or so, and sort of confessing that we have not done mission very well. That in a lot of ways, we've neglected it. And so we wanted to take the next four weeks and sort of unpack what, what is God's mission from a granular perspective. What is his mission? And then what is the mission of the church, or the church universal, right? God in the world. What is the mission of this church, right? God in the city? And, then, and what is the mission of individual Christians or sort of God in the hearts of his people? Right, so God in the world, God in the city, and God in the hearts of his people. And that's what we're going to sort of spend our time on. And that text, John 10, 11 through 16, is sort of our launch pad for thinking about this. So let me do this. Let me pray, and then let's, uh, let's dive in together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we need you this morning. Lord, we, we come here thinking that we have what we need to be able to understand you, to see you, to treasure you. Lord, and we have nothing. Lord, our taste buds are dull. Lord, our senses are flat. Our hearts are cold. And, and worse, we, we want to pretend like they're not. And Lord, we need you. Lord, unless you send your Holy Spirit to come and sort of resurrect our affections for you, Lord, we will leave here uninspired, unchanged, and unmoved by your gospel. And so we ask you, not just today, but these four weeks, would you help form in each of us and in this church body as a whole a critical and a biblical theology of what it means to be about mission? Lord, let us think about that well. Let us apply that well. Let me communicate well. Lord, not so that we leave smarter, but Lord, so that we leave changed. Would you do this for us? In Christ's name, amen. So if I asked you the question, what is God's mission, how would you answer that? Think about it. When Randy gave me the, the text and the pretense for the sermon, I, 
I sort of thought I knew what God's mission was. And then you try to put it on paper, you try to think about it, and you, it really actually becomes a lot harder to flesh out. And so when we typically think about mission, and when I'm saying mission, Webster defines it this way, the specific task with which a person or group is charged with. So the, the mission of God, which is what we want to think about today. And so we'll get very practical over the next three weeks. But, but the mission of God, or the task, the objective in it, in tools of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And, and, we, and then we say things like, let's live on mission. Let's be about mission. Let's do missions. And that text was particularly helpful for the first century church. Think about it. It was isolated to the disciples in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. It needed to go. And that text is certainly relevant place today, but I, I think what's happened is that we've replaced and sort of substituted in activity. We've made missions about activity, the go therefore part, and neglected actually remembering what missions is about. One commentator in thinking about the mission of God said this, that the theology of mission has become missionary theology. Right? So the theology of mission, or theology being the study of God, the theology of mission, the study of God's objective, which should find its root in the study of God, has been replaced, and probably well-intentioned, has been replaced with missionary theology, right? So we've substituted the study of God for the doing of activity. And I think oftentimes we even will, will sort of root our thinking about the Great Commission and activity and missions in, in good places, right? So like uh, the church. We think about God's mission and the Great Commission being the expansion of the church, or we may even think about God's mission in terms of salvations. Right? We, we are about converting people, lost people, to come to faith. But I don't think that's where the Bible roots missions. The mission of God ought to be rooted in God, or more specifically, in the triune God. So I think what we'll talk about this morning, and what I want to suggest, is that the foundation for our thinking about missions has to be tethered to our view and understanding of the Trinity. Now, let's just get some awkward things out of the way first, like the fact when we hear the word Trinity, ooh, right? We use typically weird analogies to describe it, like H2O. You know, the Trinity's like water and steam 
or ice. Or I've even heard recently the egg analogy, right? Like uh, the Trinity is uh, the yolk and then the outer shell. And, the, and, and heaven forbid if you're at a Bible study and you ask the question, hey, what's the Trinity? Ah, the Trinity. And then we sort of fumble over answers because none of us really feel comfortable oftentimes talking about the Trinity, uh, understanding the Trinity. And I, I had to, I told Becca this week, this week I think, and God saved me 13 years ago, was the first time I had ever sat down and actively and intentionally thought about the Trinity. I didn't understood the, the work of the Trinity. I acknowledge it. I see its roles. But in terms of, of turning my eye towards the Trinity and gazing at it, we never do that. When was the last time you heard a sermon on the Trinity? It seems uninteresting or even sort of heady. Some of us feel like it's sort of awkward and clunky and don't know how to quite describe it. And then we get weird. It's like, well, if I talk about God and then I talk about the Holy Spirit, am I undermining God? We, we, we don't know how to put the Trinity in, in its proper place in our minds. And we need to reframe our minds. And that's what I hope we do this morning, to think about the mission of God as God thinks about it, not as we've come to think about it. And so Kirk says this, he said, even look at the Great Commission. The work of evangelism is doused in Trinitarianism. Evangelism is God's work long before it's our work. The Father prepares the ground, the Son gives the invitation, and the Spirit prompts the person to respond in repentance and faith to the good news. Throughout Scripture, we see what? The Father sending the Son and the Son sending the Spirit. We see the displays of the Trinity all throughout our Bible, but we haven't trained our minds or eyes to think about that as the central doctrine or the central sort of diving board of missions, of what it means to be on mission or think about God's mission. The Trinity there are some words in the English language that you can describe, right? Like a football. I could describe a football in like six seconds. But then if I just try to describe to you grace, uh, it gets pretty tricky. Right? So some things are better seen and some things are better described. And so I think the Trinity, so we can sort of get a working definition because we're gonna, we just want to focus on two things this morning. What is God's mission and why is it God's mission? So before we do that, let's get a working view of what the Trinity is. And this is not an exhaustive sermon on the Trinity, right? And you may even have questions after the sermon about the Trinity, and I probably won't know the answer. But I think what we can do is look at Scripture to show us what the Trinity is. So John 17, it's the high priestly prayer. We get a... a, a a view into inner Trinitarian, right? The conversation going on between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is praying to the Father, 
And he says in, in verse 24, Father, you have loved me before the foundations of the world. The father is exactly that. He's a father who loves his son. The the father loves his son as a son. The way in which the father has loved the son forever is by pouring out his spirit on his son. The the son receives all the blessings of sonship through the spirit of the father. And so you you see this, this intimacy or this relationship where the father loves the son and, and, and the the Spirit is, is, pouring out the fa- is, is pouring out on the Son from the Father. And the Son is being worked on by the Spirit to enjoy and to love and to cherish that love which He's experiencing from the Father. And, and that's what the Trinity is. It is this, this explosion of love and intimacy and care and compassion for one another not diminishing their equality as one God, but they're experiencing love. The basis of the Trinity is their love and enjoyment of themselves. Right? And think about that doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity is distinctly different than any other faith. Think about Islam. Allah, he is a single person God who is totally self-contained, totally interested in himself, sees no need for love or affection or compassion, so why would he be kind and generous? He, he is totally contained in him of himself. And so the character and nature of our God is love and intimacy and kindness and compassion, because it has been his character and nature inside the Trinity for all of eternity. We, we are sort of touching very lightly on something that's incredibly complex, but it is incredibly important for where we're going this morning. All of that sort of, the understanding that God is, is exploding in, in indescribable love where the Father's loving the Son, the Son's loving the Spirit, the Spirit's loving the Father, and so on. All of that is, is the basis, and it, it sort of flows into the first question, which is, what is the triune God's mission, primary objective? We're going to define it this way, that the triune God's primary task or objective is to share that joy, that love, with reconciled sinners. Right? The primary task or objective of the Trinity is to bring reconciled sinners into 
the fellowship, love, and joy that they've been experiencing forever. Now, maybe some of the other ways we would talk about it is uh, God is uh, primarily concerned with glorifying himself by redeeming people and restoring creation. And that's Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. And so if, if he is about glorifying himself through the redeeming of people and the restoring of creation, and we know that that redemption extends to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and creates a people that will ultimately enjoy his grace and display his glory. And so how do you sort of, if you put all of those definitions on the, 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 the board and said, okay, if God is primarily concerned with bringing people into the enjoyment, love, and fellowship of the Trinity, if God is also concerned with glorifying himself, and then he's also concerned with redeeming people and restoring creation, like how does that all work together? Is one more than the other? And, and I think we can, we can sort of put a strand through that, and we could tie it together. In 1647, uh, a collection of Scottish, English, and Irish clergymen established the Westminster Confession of Faith. And they broke it into the larger catechism and the shorter catechism. It's like the Reader's Digest version. The first question in the shorter catechism says, and some of you probably have heard this, what is the chief end of man? And then the Catechism and the Bible tells us that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let's ask that a different way. What is God's chief end? If man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, God's chief end is to be glorified and enjoyed forever, right? So, to be glorified, for God to be glorified is for him to be seen for who he is. Something isn't somehow showing or revealing a part of God. It's simply displaying what he already is. And so, if God is concerned with being glorified and enjoyed, we see that our skin in the game, if you will, is that we get to participate in the joy that God is already experiencing inside of himself. And so if the chief end of God is to be glorified and enjoyed forever, he's going to be displayed for who he is. And when his when himself, his godness, is put on display, and people see that, when, when, when you saw that, you were changed. And when we see God for who he is, we can't help but respond in enjoyment and affection.
the ministry and mission of God, which was set in motion by the Father, it's being accomplished, it was accomplished by the Son, it's being applied actively by the Spirit, is to bring people into the perfect fellowship, love, and enjoyment of the triune God. And unlike other gods, our God doesn't use anger or manipulation or force. There's not like an army of robots that somehow love God, lavished his love on his son. We experience and are changed by his love. His love persuades our hearts to respond in affection and obedience and submission. And how is it that God could love us? Because he loves himself. His love for us is only rooted in his love for himself. Which should be incredibly encouraging, by the way. Because his love for you is not dependent upon you. His love for you is rooted in his love for his son. For his spirit. For himself. And now we need to be careful here. Because what we don't want to suggest is that somehow in in eternity past, that God needed something, right? We've heard things like this. There was a just-in-size hole in God's heart. That is really bad theology. But what we're trying to do, we're trying to grasp, it's usually well-intentioned, we're trying to grasp it. How do we explain this? right? Or, Or God was lonely and he needed you. He didn't want to live without you. And what we need to be careful of is that God needed nothing. That the triune God, the Trinity, was totally and completely satisfied, full of joy, love, and affection for one another. And and so what happens is that the love of God was so expansive that it overflowed. That's what creation is. Jonathan Edwards says it this way. Surely it is no argument of neediness in God that he's inclined to communicate his infinite fullness. It is no argument of the emptiness or deficiency of a fountain that it is inclined to overflow. What he's saying is, in the same way that a fountain overflows with water, It doesn't make it any less of a fountain, does it? God exploding and overflowing with love from the Trinity doesn't make him need anything. It's not a a, a mark of deficiency on God, but rather a mark of abundance. That the triune God had such intense explosive love and enjoyment and fellowship with one another 
that they burst at the seams, if you will, and overflowed. And that love then carries out into creation and creatures. The mission of God is to bring sinners, reconciled, redeemed sinners, into that kind of love. But why? If God didn't need us, doesn't need us, Why go through all that trouble? Before we answer that, we cannot root our doctrine of, of missions in the expansion of the church, in the salvation of people. We must root our thinking about missions, about what it means to be a, a church, a Christian, a people on mission, we must root it in the understanding of the triune God. That the triune God's primary objective is to take redeemed sinners and let them experience and enjoy the fellowship of perfect and complete love. But why? John 3.16 For God so loved. 1 John 4.8 Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The very reason that God wants to bring people into his love is because he is love, right? When we talk about love, we talk about how loving we are or, or I feel loved by you. We're displaying a characteristic. We wouldn't say, wow, you're very man-like, Right? You're very woman-like. You're very brown-headed-like. It's just who you are. It's what you are. Love is the substance of what the Trinity, the triune God, is. And by the way, when you say Trinity, it is interchangeable with Jesus, God, the Father. We ought to be thinking about the Trinity interchangeably. That's just an aside. Actually, let's, let me go to Romans 8. This is so good. God is love. And we see it here. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he predestined, 
uh, he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Colossians 1. He is the image, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn in loving the son. And he had so much love for the son through his spirit that he wanted many sons. He wanted much sons. He wanted to display and overflow his love to many sons and daughters. That's Romans 8. In order that Jesus might be the firstborn of many brothers. Why does God love and want to bring people into that love? Because he is love. And the way that he displays his love is by delighting in his son and delighting in his people with the same love. What kind of God is that? Who, who does that? Who, needing nothing, offers everything? That's, that's our God. That's this Christian God. The characteristic of God is that he so delights in the love of his son. And we see this when Jesus is baptized, where, where, where the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove, and we hear God's voice, this is my son whom I am well pleased. And that kind of ferocious, intense love that's been poured out on the Son for all of eternity by the Spirit is the same love that He directs to His son. This is my daughter with whom I am well pleased. Because His love for you is not rooted in you. It's rooted in Himself. And God has designed that what makes him look most glorious is when his son and his sons gaze upon his beauty. That's Psalm 27.4. Or say like David said in Psalm 84, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Isaac Watts, the uh, very famous hymn writer, says, It is not to be expected that we should love God supremely if we have not known him to be more desirable than all other things. We live for and love what we find to be most attractive, most enjoyable. It's who we are. Why we must anchor our thought about missions in the Trinity is because we cannot fully experience joy in God unless we see God for all that he is. That is what we're presenting to people with the gospel. 
There is something more desirable and beautiful than your lust. There's something more desirable and beautiful than yourself. There's something more desirable and beautiful than fill in the blank. That is the presentation of the gospel. How can people who don't understand where and why that love exists, how could they ever communicate it to themselves or to other people? This is true of me. We, we know we don't want to go to hell, but we don't really enjoy God. How is that even possible that we could pro- proclaim a good gospel that Christ came to save sinners, but not know or proclaim the good God whose gospel it is? It's like Christian schizophrenia. But it's where we are because we, we, we battle with these dual natures. Right? We're, we're waking up every day having to fight and see. And maybe we're not fighting or not seeing. Not only is God's mission to bring redeemed sinners into fellowship and enjoyment of the triune God, but to hold and keep and lavish already redeemed sinners with the love, affection, and joy of the triune God. The next three weeks, Lord willing, we will unpack more exhaustively how we actually do that, right? How, how do we if, we, if we're keeping our minds tethered, our hearts tethered to saying, okay, we must see God for who he is in all that he is in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we must, we must fight to see him in that way in order that our hearts can be changed and affected with the love of the triune God. That's what it means in 1 Corinthians where it says, for Christ's love compels us. By nature, we are slothful people. We, we just want to sit and do nothing and be, be changed in no way. And praise God in his kindness to us that his love for us, his love on us, and his love now through his spirit in us has nothing to do with us. But it is meant to proclaim and to highlight him. Next three weeks, we'll talk about how do we live that out 
as a church, a universal church in the world? How, how, do we, how do we live that out as a church here in Myrtle Beach in the city? And then in our hearts, how do we wrestle through what it means to live a life of mission or purpose or intentionality aligned with what God's mission is? If God's mission is to take redeem or take sinners, reconcile them, make them abundance and overflow of the love of God. Here are a couple of things that we can sort of do, we can prime ourselves for as we think more about this. Number one, we ought to start praying like we actually believe the Trinity exists. Right? The Father initiates all things. The Son accomplished all things. And the Spirit is applying all things in the hearts of his people. Let's, let's start praying with our children, with our spouses, in our private prayer time. Let's start praying like the Trinity actually exists. Number two, let's ask God to open our eyes to see the work and ministry of each member of the Trinity. Number three, let's ask God to give us the power and presence of the Holy Spirit to make our souls delight in the Father the same way that the Son delights in His Father. What we love is far more important than what we do. And Augustine felt this tension to say, we cannot love God unless he changes our hearts. So therefore, we cannot love God unless he changes our hearts. Let's ask him to do that. Number four. Let's ask God to give us minds and eyes to start thinking about our other relationships in light of the Trinitarian example that we have. What would it mean for me as a husband if I started asking God for me to love Eli and Merritt the way that he loves his son? What would it mean for me as a coworker if I started asking God to help me want desperately, to overflow with so much enjoyment of God that I can't help but love other people. Let's ask God for that. And I think, Lord willing, over the next couple of weeks, that God will change us. God not only will give us a good, sound mind to think about mission, but that'll actually give us hearts persuaded by his love to do mission. Not out of activity, but out of enjoyment. One of the ways that we can experience 
this particular joy as Christians is through communion. You know, it is and has been for thousands of years a special means of God's grace. It's a, a deposit of his kindness to us that we can remember God had so much love for the son that raised him. And if he has that kind of love for his son, he has that kind of love for his people. And so communion is meant only to be for those that profess Christ as king. And if you're here and everything we talked about this morning makes no sense, it can. If, if maybe you're here because somebody dragged you here, and you don't know anything about the Trinity or God or the gospel, this morning, let me ask you this. If you had the chance to be totally and fully satisfied, loved, and fulfilled, would you take it? The answer is yes. That's what God has offered us in Christ. But not simply to throw us a bone, but because he is exploding with love. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.